Live to see it, friends. You're listening to Fast Forward Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network. Fast Forward Radio is an audio production of the Speculist weblog, and you can find us online at speculist.com, or you can go straight to the blog at blog.speculist.com. On the podcast and on the blog, we talk about the future. We talk about emerging technologies and emerging possibilities. We talk about a future that we think is well on its way, one that we're all going to want to live to see. My name is Phil Bowermaster, and with me, as always, is my co-host, co-blogger, and co-futurist, Stephen Gordon. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Phil. How are you tonight? I'm super fantastic, in the words of the Manolo. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Watching that ball game, I guess, huh? Well, there it is. Yeah, this is... uh, we we got Super Bowl Sunday. we got uh, Super Tuesday coming up in two days. And I believe you have uh, declared this to be Super Speculist Sunday as well. Is that right? That's right. We're going to have a great show. We've, uh, we've planned a lot of stuff to talk about tonight. So it's going to be a fun show. Nice uh, Super Bowl wrap-up show. So. Exactly. Well, in, in honor of the Super Bowl and in an attempt to compete with the waning moments and the awarding of the Lombardi Trophy, we've gone totally gimmicky here this evening. And we're going to... Uh, we're going to have the show be uh, all segments, and, and plus we've got uh, we, we've got an additional uh, participant here this evening. I should introduce Michael Darling. Michael, are you there? I'm here, and uh, ten seconds to go, and the Patriots just missed a chance to to take it back. Okay, so I'm, the Patriots. It's I'm looking looking like the Giants, huh? It's looking ten seconds to go. It's fourth down. The Patriots are deep in their own end of the field. It's uh, it's hero time. <laughs> and nobody gave him any chance at this thing. That's a great thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, let us know as soon as it's official. I, I will. Then, uh, uh, I will. I will say something. We, okay. we can. We can get on with our lives. So, uh, thoughts on the generally thoughts on the Super Bowl. Since we usually start off with uh, a little bit of a sports talk before we get into other subjects on the show. Anyhow, um, Stephen, what do you think? Uh, any? Well, any, the thing that's great about it is uh, the fact that it's a real ball game. There's nobody running away with it. It's. It's been. They've been within four points of each other most of the game. Is that right? And That's yeah, exactly uh, three right. Three zip, so, you know, seven three, yeah, yeah, all the way, all the way. Three, so the, seven, four, That's seven. that makes a fun ball game. Something that's compelling all the way through, and you're not you're not wanting to say, okay, well, the, the, they're ahead by twenty. I think I'll I'll go do something else. No, you you're glued to this one. That's a good, it's a great ball game. Well, every time I thought Brady was going to run away with it, you know, he would start doing what he does. Uh, I think uh, Tyler Emerson was talking about this a couple weeks ago. You know, it's like as soon as they get the ball, they're you know they're going to get a first down and then another first down, and then a first down score. And suddenly New York's shutting them down. It was kind of remarkable to see that uh, to see that happening. I mean, I, I don't follow uh, the Patriots all season long or anything like that, but I mean it's impossible not to know how they've been playing uh, if you follow football at all. And um, it seems like New York has really kind of dialed them in here tonight. Not, Patriots not, just not lost today. the ball on downs. Game's over. Game's over. All right. Two seconds Game's to go. Over. The Giants can take a knee and run out the clock. Okay. So, I mean, they might as well pack it in. That's so, holy congratulations, New York. It's history. Yeah. Way to go. So, Eli follows in his big brother's footsteps. There it is. <laughs> it's all genetic, clearly. <laughs> it doesn't hurt, I'm sure. But, uh, so yeah, that's just... Just before the show, I should say, Stephen, you and I were chatting about who was going to win, and even though I was rooting for New York, I said it had to be New England because they had destiny written all over them. And what was your response to that? I said that and a buck fifty will buy you a cup of coffee. <laughs> yeah, not around here. <laughs> It'll get you the, maybe the, the the smallest coffee. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Depends on whether you're at Starbucks or McDonald's, I guess. 
Yeah, the point is you were, you were correct. Destiny meant nothing. 18 and 0 meant nothing. Looks like the uh, New York Giants are the NFL champs. And I, you know, 18, uh, 18 and 1 is, I think, the way to refer to it now. Uh, there you go. That's exactly right. 18 and 1 is is the way to describe it. And uh, they they didn't get their, you know, they late for their date with destiny. I guess is about all you can say for that. Before the game, the coach uh, for the Giants, the coach for the Giants, he says, avoid. The, he was he was talking to the players. He says, avoid the temptation to be just grateful to be here. You know, uh, we made it this far, and uh, you know, the, in other words, win the ball game. Like we can be well, grateful that's old- been here another day. Yeah. Today, let's play yeah. tough. Yeah. 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 That's the old Oscar syndrome, right? It's an honor just to be nominated. Yeah, you don't want to just be nominated. You want to win the thing. And so uh, that's, right. that's apparently that's what they went through and did. So, right. And, and speaking, of, speaking of the Oscars, um, I don't know if you guys watched any of the stuff leading up, but what is the deal with, like, Ryan Seacrest doing interviews from the red carpet on Super Bowl Sunday? Did, did you guys see any of that? I, I didn't. You I mean today that was happening? Good. That was happening today. Oh, that's going, funny. The red carpet. What? What is, is he this? serious? <laughs> yeah. I mean, because as a satire, as a parody, it would be it would be could be hysterical. Yeah, it would be funny in and comedy. I agree. Clothes. Players' wives are coming in. You're dogging on their clothes. It would be fun. But to do it for real, that sounds that sounds comical. It was really going on. Okay. It, it was it was truly happening. So. Uh, I never, wow. I did not hear the phrase "What are you wearing?" But I was listening for. It. I mean, not what, who, right? Wow. Yeah. I, I blew the line. Wow. Who are you wearing? Is what they always say. So. <laughs> okay. Well, I think that does it for our sports. Nike. Oh, oh, I'm wearing Nike. <laughs> well, exactly. Yes. <laughs> now here's Ryan Seacrest talking to John Travolta on the red carpet. I'm going. Wait, what am I watching? What event is about to start? <laughs> Right. Surreal. I mean, it really was. Okay, well, uh, you know, congrats to the Giants, of course. Uh, you know, uh, better luck next year to the Patriots. Uh, we got to feel bad for all the Patriots except for one. I got to say Tom Brady, right? Because I just want to. I just want to say one thing philosophically about him. My wife and I were discussing this at dinner this evening. Okay, Tom Brady, uh, incredible season. This was his fourth Super Bowl appearance, I believe, and he's yep. won in three of them. Yep. Um, arguably best quarterback of our time, possibly one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, right? Now, if he wins tonight, had he won, uh, he gets to go celebrate with Giselle Bundchen, okay? Right. He lost tonight, so now he's going to go be consoled by Giselle Bundchen. So <laughs> so, so you're, no, what you're saying is a little Brady. sympathy for the rest of the Patriots. Tom Brady, basically, we hate him because he's perfect. <laughs> he should be okay. Yeah, I really, you know, I'm... <laughs> I, I can't work up any huge sympathy. I don't need to be all right. Fair enough. He'll come through Fair the enough. evening. Okay. So uh, let's talk a little about a little bit about what we're doing this evening, format-wise. We've got kind of a special show, as as uh, I mentioned. We're doing um, Super Speculist Sunday, and uh, we're going a little gimmicky tonight. We we normally only have if if we do a special segment, we we normally only do one segment per show. Is that right, Stephen? We've never done more than. Yeah, one maybe one, segment. maybe one, yeah. That's yeah, one it. at the most. Yeah, sometimes we don't do any. We'll have an interview segment, and, uh, you know, that, that that might differentiate, but other than that. But tonight we're doing four, so we're we're really uh, we're, we're really kicking it off. We're kicking off the M Report, which is going to be a regular feature, and we've got uh, Tales of the Paranormal, which has been, our, I guess, our most consistent feature so far. And then we're also doing a new feature called Astounding Science Facts, which is going to be a lot of fun. And Stephen, you're going to be doing a, a, a feature called uh, Fun Tech. Fun Tech. Yeah. yeah. So, so 
lots, lots of fun stuff. Um, why don't we kick it off then and 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 uh, have we got the volume cranked up? Time. I totally talked over it. Okay. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> well, that is okay, Phil. Launch into it. I, I, I talked over it. Go, go ahead. Do it again. All right. See, that is so good. It's just worth doing twice, don't you think? I think. I, I, I liked it better the second time. Yeah, it is. I, if we did it four or five times, it would just get better and better. But no. Okay, I've got. I've got two paranormal topics I want to talk about. Both were covered in the blog. The first is my observation that aliens are stupid, and um, I think we should take great comfort from that. And I I had to think about this for a while before I came to this conclusion, but I was actually keying off uh, the recent developments, the news story in Stephenville, Texas, uh, it's a small farming community. Stephen, you've actually been there, or you've been near there? Is that yeah, right? I've been there. Um, it's a little town. Oh, it's about thirty, forty thousand people, and um, it's sort of halfway between Fort Worth, Texas, and Abilene, Texas. And uh, I, you know, as as uh, I, you know, as we were going through the area, I, I had to stop and get a picture because the, the road sign says Stephenville to the left and Gordon to the right. A little town. Yeah, of Gordon. We, had, we showed that picture on the blog. <laughs> so, and anyway, that was we were very proud of that. Although uh, um, some readers, I won't, we won't say who, challenged that and said that maybe that was fake and you were making the whole thing up. But uh, well, it was Michael. It was Michael. It was me. The thing that looks the fakest about it is, uh, you know, he's got stumpy legs. It's like your feet are right below your knees. And I know you're going to tell me you were standing in tall grass, but that's bull. So, I've been in that part of Texas, you're saying, and the grass is You're stumpy. saying this is a retouch picture based on Stephen's legs. <laughs> That's right. It, it looks like my legs were cut off, like uh, you know uh, that picture from Back to the Future with the brother disappearing or something. That's that's the, uh, the defense rests. <laughs> there it is. I, I promise it was tall grass. My feet are are you know at, at normal distance from my torso. So. Yeah, I I I, I think that. Uh, I think that the the photo was obviously real, and there was nothing retouched or phony about that photo whatsoever. And I except for the sitgo station in the back, I had to put that in there. <laughs> yeah, the gas was too cheap, but that's a different thing. Yeah, you weren't changing the price of gas. <laughs> make it make the whole thing seem a little more realistic. I think that's yeah. a good idea. But um, but but yeah. So in Stephenville, Stephenville, there's been this flap. There has been a, a huge rash of sightings of UFOs suddenly. Everyone is seeing lights in the sky. There was one night when a bunch of people saw something very strange happening, light moving low in the sky. And um, this one has been responded to locally, I believe, by the Navy, who say that what they saw were uh, some kind of tests occurring in the area or something like that. But more is going on than that. And on the blog, I had talked about this fellow, Ricky Sorrells, um, who had reported seeing a flat metallic ob- object hovering about 300 feet over a pasture uh, behind his house. And uh, he wasn't going to tell anybody. But then when everybody started saying they were seeing lights in the sky, um, he decided, well, it would be okay to come forward. And, in fact, I had this quote I want to read from him because I think this is just uh, one of the greatest things ever. Uh, this is what Sorrell said. He said, you hear about a big bass or big buck in the area, but this is a different deal. It feels, <laughs> yeah. You know, I love it at all. You know, he's right. I mean, that's an insightful comment on its own, but uh, let's go on. Uh, it feels good to hear other people saw something because that means I'm not crazy. 
<laughs> his uh, his logic is practically infallible. It is and, uh, I lived in a okay, small town absolutely. in Idaho for a while. people are seeing light in the sky, the fact that he's seeing uh, a metallic object hovering 300 feet above his field. Ironclad proof that he's not crazy. Okay, so well, at least uh, at least his insanity is within normal uh, within normal bounds, maybe. Well, that's a good point. Okay, he's you know relatively speaking, uh, compared to the other citizens of Stephenville, the normal citizens of Stephenville, he's about par. It would seem. Is, is that what you're suggesting? Yeah. Well, there, since there are other people who saw it, maybe that's that's about right. Or he's not more than two standard deviations off the norm. <laughs> there you go. He, he's not even one standard deviation from the norm. He's like right there in the fat part of the curve. He, he is. Uh, that's know. his logic. His logic is other people came forward and said they saw this thing. Therefore, I'm not crazy. His logic is good. I think so. Okay. And and what this raises in my mind is just is just this, okay? The fact that aliens either want to be seen or they don't want to be seen. Well, they don't care about being seen. And now, now, That's hey, Michael's point. He had a third, That was the third point Michael wanted to... Uh, okay, and, and we'll come to that. We will come to that. Okay, but let me, let me, let me walk through my impeccable logic first, and then let me, uh, <laughs> let me shoot down Michael's uh, kind of quasi-argument that he made. <laughs> Maybe they want to be seen. But, okay, now, if they want to be seen, I think they're doing a very bad job because they're showing up in Stephenville, Texas, and, and my suggestion is that they, uh, you know, that they do a big... Mothership launch out from behind Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas. Okay, and then and then they will be seen. Okay, that's being yeah. You know, back pasture in Stephenville, Texas doesn't cut it. Yeah, yeah. I don't even want you to land on the White House lawn. I want you to like, you know, Times Square, right? Set the mothership down in Times Square, something like that. That's get out, shake some hands, get back in the spaceship. <laughs> yeah. And, and then and then if you don't want to be seen, okay. I don't want you showing up in, in Ricky Sorrell's back 40 here, okay? You know, it's like th- that's very, very bad work on your part if you're trying not to be seen and, and this guy is seeing you. So so I think that aliens are either bad at being seen or bad at not being seen, and either one proves that they're uh, stupid. Now, now, Michael, go ahead and, and make the, uh, uh, the, the make your case. Uh, well, I, think, um, shoot this I think it's safe to say I had more caffeine the day I – posted it, but I would say that there are there are other possibilities, not just three, but let's let's take the third one because it's the next most logical extension of the two you've given. They're indifferent to being seen. So wherever they happen to be seen or show up, they don't care. Okay, and my, my response to that on the blog was if they don't care about being seen, that means that they are slovenly in their habits, therefore lazy, and therefore what? <laughs> say it with me. Well, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> You well, have not gotten so, off the hook for being stupid. Just you know, a plausible, liberal arty kind of argument. I, I'm, I'm with you there. Well, thank you. It's, it's thank kind you. of, it's, it's, it would, you know, uh, being seen or not seen by uh, another intelligent species, it's not something you can really be on the fence about. Let's say if we went to, you know, some other world and we saw that, hey, there's a sentient race down there, we would want to make the... You know, we we would want to make the choice. Okay, are we actually going to make contact, or are we not going to make contact? And then we would want to stick to that. You know, whatever yeah. the decision was. I think that there need to be a decision made. In, and, in, in for human intelligence, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and but so, the, but but the, maybe an alien is different enough that they they're not going to have the same logic. They're just process. worried about getting getting whatever it is they're doing. They don't care about us. That's 
that's the possibility. There's others. I I don't want to blame the point because I think at the end of the day, Phil's obviously right. They are stupid. Thank you. Because okay. <laughs> what you're saying is they don't think like us, and if they don't think like the three of us, by definition. <laughs> oh man! It's a binary universe. You're either like us or you're stupid. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, there. You know, I don't explicit, but but we got to it. Okay, so there it is. And uh, just moving quickly on the the, the other major uh, tales of the paranormal piece I wanted to talk about was the um, Bigfoot on Mars, which we didn't write about much. I just uh, happened to actually refer to it because it turns out that one of my vacation photos from Arizona last year <laughs> happened to have an image very similar to that. And, and I, just to fill the listeners in, uh, I guess in 2004, one of the Mars rovers took this image, which has only recently been looked at, and uh, you guys have seen this uh, online, I'm sure. There, there's, a, there's a little figure in the foreground, if you magnify the image far enough, that looks remarkably like the... Um, the Bigfoot in the famous Bigfoot film taken back in the 60s. You know, the Bigfoot who's kind of walk, loping off in the distance. Um, have, have you seen this picture? I well, have. Yeah, I have. I saw it on the news the other day. It's it's yeah, actually, it, to me, it's uh, it's more convincing than the face on Mars ever was. You know, yeah, because, I mean, it looks it like looks, something that we know is real, which is Bigfoot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Plus, others, uh, folks in Europe have pointed out that it's shaped a lot like the um, Little Mermaid statue, uh, yeah, the statue of the Little Mermaid uh, in in Denmark. Well, it's about the same pose, isn't it? Say again. It's about the same pose. It's yeah, yeah, in, very it's so. about that same pose. Yeah. Now, I, I don't want to belabor. Go ahead. You're not suggesting Bigfoot posed as a Little Mermaid for the statue. Hey, no, anything possible. I wouldn't okay. suggest that. I just want to say this, okay? Now, we've talked in the past about these astounding coincidences between my own life and the planet Mars, okay? And I just want to point out, my <laughs> daughter, when she was a little kid, her favorite movie in the world was The Little Mermaid. Little, little Bigfoot. <laughs> a little, a little Mermaid? <laughs> <laughs> little Mermaid. Oh, and when I was a kid, my dad took me to see a Bigfoot movie. Well, these if, coincidences... If the ever... hairs on your neck aren't standing up now, I don't know what's going to work for you guys, but... Um, uh, you know, all that's to say, I, I put the picture up there, and I showed it, and someone pointed out, they said, you know, Phil, you showed that exact same picture earlier on the web, and it didn't have that figure in the foreground. <laughs> hey, and just, if you're not freaking out now, okay, I mean, that is just so weird. That's just beyond weird. But, oh, man. Uh, in, anyway, I, I think we're we're probably getting beyond the realm of the mysterious into the absolutely dangerous, to the point where we might get shut down if we keep talking about these things. <laughs> So I'm going to say, with that, that'll do it for this edition of... And at this point, I'm going to turn it over to Michael Darling for the first edition of The M Report. Take it away, Michael. I don't have any, uh, you know, awesome dun-dun-dun music, but <laughs> I should come up with some. Um, okay, we'll jump in. When uh, when I start uh, blathering on in an incoherent way, if I get to that point, and if I don't, you know, jump in anyway when you want. Well, tell um, us what our topic on the M report is going to be, and I'm, I'm going to be very disappointed if it's not that uh, Tesla was a time traveler. It's well, then prepare to be disappointed, my friend, unless he shows <laughs> up, which we know is possible. It could happen. Um, no, I'm, I'm going to talk it. about energy. Uh, energy, not in the sense of me digesting carbohydrates, but uh, oil, gas, coal, and uh, it's, it's, I think, logical replacements uh, 
uh, starting with Fusion, and uh, I'll mention one or two others. But I don't care about the others right now. I'm only focused on Fusion. Um, and I'll say this. I have uh, dozens, if not hundreds or thousands, of futuristic or technological advances that I believe in or hope could happen. Um, some will be ones we want. Some will be ones we don't want. There's going to be unintended consequences and all that. But for the ones we're working on, the ones we're, we're being intentional about, I think energy is the most important one. And I'll make the case briefly that energy is the most important. Um, but before I get to that, I want to say as, a, uh, as an economy, um, forget that we happen to be a nation at, the po- at this point in, in history, but as an economy, how we organize labor and capital and how we therefore organize most human activity and certainly most of the human activity that would result in the kind of future that we speculate about, um, energy is the start point. It's, it's the, the primary fundamental thing beyond uh, creativity. You can be as creative as you want, and if you don't have energy to put it into work, um, you're just another guy in your garage. Um, so the premise is this. We currently have an oil and gas and coal-based economy uh, for our energy. And um, in terms of illustrating why it's the most important, I, I first want to uh, uh, preface uh, comments about why energy is so important by saying I respect the fact that the, the speculist is apolitical, and I'm not going to get political. I think I get the main reason that the speculist remains apolitical is that the best and most useful productive discussions about science and technology get dragged way down when they enter into the echo chamber of politics. Um, right. And there's plenty of places to have that conversation, but it's not the speculist. Now, now let me stop you just for a moment, Michael. Now, Stephen, you have the mute button ready to hit in case he does go political. Is that right? That's right, yeah. <laughs> we'll start. Okay, so we're completely Fair enough. Don't worry, Michael. Go ahead. Fair <laughs> enough. I, I conclude that point by, by this. Uh, we're not going to get to the Star Trek future without also figuring out the Star Trek economy. Um, so political considerations aside, uh, I would want, I would hope we can get a national leadership that is bold enough to step up and say we're committed to a working fusion reactor within 10 years, sort of the equivalent of, of when the president once upon a time said we're going to put a man on the moon and bring him back safely within the, by the end of the decade. Um, if we did the fusion reaction, reactor, then you could stop quibbling about U.S. energy independence because we would have it as a byproduct of having fusion uh, reactor. Uh, we can solve CO2 emissions because now electricity doesn't have to come from all the things that emit all this CO2. It comes from something that does something totally different. And as a uh, rather interesting thing, although we wouldn't need fission reactors at that point, we can solve the fission waste problem because the thinking goes fusion reactor basically can, can consume all the fissile waste. Yeah, there, um, is no, now, there is no radioactive waste. There you go. Not, very, not, very little. None, not only is there none, but you can take the radioactive material that came from the fissile world and you can, you can take it through a fusion reaction and now it's not a problem. Basically, you, you throw it into the sun. Yeah. Um, but to just nail home the point here about arguing about the government, we can argue uh, free market and big government. We can argue that all night. And since we're not drinking, at least I'm not, not an interesting conversation. Uh, the truth about that, to me, is that the free market didn't put Apollo 11 on the moon, and it was never going to. If we were waiting for the free market to do it, we'd still be waiting. So, uh, point one about why energy is so critically important and why, and I'm going to come around to, to why the fusion tangent right now is a good one to chase, um, or at least an obvious one to chase. Uh, depending on the source of the estimate, oil approximately equals to something between 16,000 and 25,000 hours of human labor. That's like one person working 
40 hours a week for either eight years or 10 years, depending on whose estimate you're using or how you measure the efficiency and the labor in, included in a barrel of oil. Um, so even at 100 bucks a barrel of oil for eight to 10 years of human labor, that is cheap energy compared to anything else we have. Um, and the fact that remains that even at two or three hundred dollars a barrel, or four hundred dollars a barrel, or some other large number, uh, incomprehensible to our economy today, um, it's still cheap compared to the human labor equivalent that you'd have to do. And I'm not suggesting that without cheap oil, we go back to everything is is all human labor equivalent. But that's why we can build a national transportation infrastructure, for example, that is less than 20 percent efficient, taking the energy out of a barrel of oil and transferring it into motion. Um, so two. And I hate to make this a second point, so let's just call it 1A. Um, we've, we've heard and we've read and we've perhaps uh, thought about peak oil production and what that means. I just want to throw out a couple numbers that I won't belabor all that long. These come from the U.S. Department of Energy. Uh, some, the first part of the chart, which basically is from 1960 to year 2000, comes from March 2007. The latter part of the chart I'm looking at uh, came from year-end, 2007. Uh, from 1960 to the year 2000, uh, worldwide oil production tripled from a little over 20 million barrels a day to almost 70 million barrels a day in 40 years. Not bad. But from year 2000 to the year 2007, it's gone up about 10%. And what, what those numbers look like it, from 02 to 07, uh, 67, 69, 72, 73, 06, 07, 74 million barrels a day both years. I'm not necessarily saying that is the peak, it's the peak at this price point. If prices go up, oil is going to go up. But, you know, we're, we're, if not in the, the transition to peak oil production, we're in the transition to, hey, we don't get cheap oil anymore. Right. And math says, hey, that even at a couple hundred dollars a barrel, it's still cheaper than it was, but it's, uh, it's not as cheap as it used to be. So why fusion? Well, first, I don't say fusion to the exclusion of solar or cellulosic ethanol from garbage or anything else that could come along that would uh, be, be better or more efficient or, you know, contribute in a good way. I don't say to the exclusion. But up until not that long ago, I was thinking fusion was like literally the Mr. Fusion in the, uh, the, the movie. It was, you know, back to the future. The fusion's just pie in the sky, room temperature, superconductivity, electricity from two potatoes kind of idea. It wasn't like something we could do. And then I saw the Boussard talk because it was up on the uh, year-end 50, on the speculist, and that, that talk was a uh, uh, Google talk, uh, Should Google Go Nuclear, which was uh, kind of a cute title. I'll uh, also point out that I, I haven't seen all that many Google talks, but I've seen a few from the website, and I think it's the only one that has a laugh track, which was interesting in its own way. But I saw it, and I realized as I'm watching it, first of all, he, he did the talk, uh, Dr. Bouchard did this talk in October of 2006, so it was uh, November 2006. So it was a solid 14 months after that I'm only becoming aware of it. So, you know, part of me is like, hey, why wasn't I informed that this was out there? But, uh, you know, my, my real reaction is who can keep up with all this stuff? And, and so I would, I, would, I would say to the speculators, hey, we should, um, you, there ought to be a scoreboard. Take the year in 50 and, like, you know, put it across the top of the page with little green, yellow, or white code. And green means, hey, there was news on this thing this week, and maybe we blogged on it, maybe we didn't. And what yellow means, yeah, something tangential happened, but no direct benefit. White, no news. And then maybe I could keep up. Uh, even then, I, I couldn't. But I watched the thing. And That's I think a good idea. We should, we should actually do something. You know, the problem with that is that there's so many developments, Phil, that I mean, we would never get around to writing anything. 
We'd just be yeah. keeping the scoreboard because there's yeah, so many our, things happening. Day time. jobs. That's really our problem. Yeah, yeah. We well, just need to. We need to be independently okay. wealthy. If anyone wants to write a check, I'll, I'll you know, we'll receive it. Yeah, anyone I'll write it, but you just can't cash it. <laughs> That's right. Now, um, okay. Now, now so, before we proceed, wait, hang on, hang on, because I, I don't know how many points you have on your. Well, I'm just going to talk about Broussard and make a few comments about him, and then you know, you guys can. Can uh, trivialize my 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 obsession with fusion. <laughs> no, not at all. Okay, well we look forward to that. But uh, are, are you gonna are you gonna uh, tell us how the Boussard fusion works and how it differs from kind of the mainstream uh, efforts to bring fusion about, which have been going on for what fifty years now? And we've if been I could do that, I could write the check. Yeah, but I will tell you why I can't do that. Okay. And let me back to the scoreboard for just a second. Let me just say that. I understand that big advances sometimes happen in unexpected ways, and you can't really predict that. I mean, you can try to predict what are the important milestones, but you can't necessarily predict where the big advances come from. But I also understand that most science and most technology doesn't happen by huge, sudden, dramatic breakthroughs. You know, that's that's the stuff of movies and novels that you can read in one sitting. Um, but in fact, most of the really important things happen by increment and steady advance. And even though you can do a Manhattan Project and take uh, physics and nuclear physics from where it was to the bomb in a, what appeared to be a relatively short time in retrospect, um, in and of itself, that is sort of the anomaly to how this kind of science works. Although, when it comes to Broussard's talk, I think oh, that's exactly the kind of thing we should do a, a, a Manhattan Project equivalent on because he says that for $200 million bucks we could build the next prototype of what they were working on. And I say, okay, let's assume he's off by half, or even a tenth. Let's assume it's not $200 million, it's $400 million, or it's even $2 billion. But for $2 billion bucks we can prove that the fusion reaction that he was, he was working on, or that his company, uh, EMC2, uh, was working on, was legitimate. So here's why I can't explain the difference between the sort of conventional uh, approach to uh, what's going on with fusion and the Taurus reactor and what's going on in Boussard's now dead brain. Um, I'm not suggesting that he was cryogenically frozen and there's anything still going on in his brain. I'm just, you know, I, I lack the What was going on that. in his brain, which is now dead. That's right. Way to deconstruct that sentence. Gotcha. Okay. Um, but here's, here's the thing. It's, uh, he thought, and well, conspiracy theories aside, the Navy basically funded his company. The Navy is very interested in powering uh, the fleet, uh, moving away from uh, nuclear, the nuclear reactor world. They've moved toward and moving towards fusion. It has numerous uh, benefits to the Navy for doing that with the big boats. Numerable benefits for the rest of us. And people go watch the Bussard talk. You see his last slide that he puts up in the talk. Uh, I'll just paraphrase. You save the world. Um, but the approach as basically everybody else has focused on since we started, anybody's anywhere started working on fusion, is, I would say, mechanical. You build a gigantic device, and you contain the fusion in this bigger and bigger device. A torus ring looks like a gigantic donut, but um, that's, that's the one that the, the European consortium is working on, and of course there is a European consortium, and of course they are working on it, um, but they're following that path. What he and his team came up with was uh, an electrical field, an electrostatic field, or an inertial electro electrostatic confinement process where you would contain the fusion process and this electron activity um, electrically. A uh, very different approach 
yielding uh, what he thought was much greater efficiencies because the device wouldn't have to be that big and it doesn't have to be that heavy and you're not basically trying to build the sun, you're building a device that replicates the, the, the nuclear process. Um, so I saw the, the thing and I thought, you know, my God, I, I'm picturing, now, if you didn't see it, go see it, but Boussard is, uh, how should we say, a very practical, uh, very real scientist. He's dry and he's boring and he's dull. And what he didn't get is that he needs some sort of uh, little anthropomorphic cartoon to, you know, really pitch his idea so people can relate to it. I picture some Homer Simpson-like energy consumer drooling and chanting, ah, fusion, you know, <laughs> like when Homer's chasing after donuts and things. Um, I also thought, okay, the Navy was basically his main source of funding. They killed his funding. And I can understand why Venezuela, who has an oil-based economy, is not going to make the investment to chase this technology. But I thought, why not Japan or China or France? Well, that's where, that's where their, their consortium comes in because they're chasing down a whole different path of technology and to sort of throw that out and put people out of work and now chase this, this radical American's path. Um, that's challenging. And I will say that I've bounced the the talk off some people in a position to help me from a technological point of view go, yeah, it is the Mr. Fusion coffee maker. I mean, it's, it's, it's a dream. It's impossible. Or, you know, who knows? This is, and the, even in the talk, Boussard acknowledges there's only three or four people who could really evaluate the technology. And the engineers I've talked with, or the nuclear physicist in one case, said, yeah, the problem bad sign when you the guy makes the claim only three or four people can understand it it's not quite the same as saying you know it it came to me by by mystical means and revelation or test of the time traveler brought me a book from the future but it's just as hard to assess if and if that's the path you got to go down you got to really ask yourself if you know the guy's really on to something real or not um so i say well yeah okay but at the end of the day for something between what Boussard estimated at 200 million, maybe he's up and it's, it's a few more bucks. Um, in the grand scheme of things, you have a working fusion reactor. My, I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling. So, you know, that's, 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 that's where I think. And, and Boussard died uh, just this past fall. Um, and I, in, in, in thinking about that and watching the talk and looking the guy up and thinking, oh, I'm going to contact him and go, hey, I'm going to help you get your company funded. I'll send you four bucks. I got three or four bucks. Um, that'll get you going. And um, I, I read that he had died. And something else in the uh, year-end 50 uh, reminded me of uh, Phil having quoted the, the wisdom of a Nairobian hooker. And I thought, oh, perhaps God didn't want Boussard to give the world fusion energy. And hence, you know, he had to die before he got funded. And uh, I, I say that with, with uh, due respect to Nairobian hookers, but to uh, point out that I'd, I would question the God who would want that Nairobian hooker to stay alive so her children could have a mother, and that was her logic. Hey, I'm not getting sick from any kind of STD or HIV, and God wants me to be alive so my kids have a mother. And I thought, yeah, but the implication is that the God that wants you alive wants you to aspire to make two or three bucks a day doing what you're doing. And so I didn't really, that logic was a little fuzzy for me, but perhaps that's why Boussard couldn't live long enough to see his fusion reactor come online, because... Well, he's still got a team that's active, correct? He's still, they, they, I believe that he's still got uh, some, the, the, the they're working, but they don't, they don't have a lot of, they, they didn't they're down to no funding just about. Yeah, they didn't vanish. The, the plans, the drawings, the paper he published in September of '06, which sort of kicked off uh, what turned out to be 12 or 13 months of a lot of discussion from him 
um, and uh, people around him, but did not inspire either A, the three or four people who he claimed really could assess the technology, nor B, somebody with a check to step up and write it um, to pursue the technology. And so EMC2 uh, is basically still looking for uh, that angel investor, and um, and I think they've sort of realized that an X Prize like uh, funding mechanism isn't going to get them there. Right. Well, I, I, we don't. I mean, obviously, none, none of us three could can uh, talk intelligently about the the tech here. You know, we don't we don't know what the chances of this working is or not. But I mean, the way I look at it is when when pursuing a huge goal. I think it's it's good to have multiple tracks going at one time, and uh, and and if you you know if you got uh, you know most of the world working on the the larger what, what they call uh, tomahawk or anyway tomahawk yeah yeah is that is that what they're called tomahawk yeah. uh, reactors you got most of the world working on that and why not spend uh, a billion or so uh, pursuing this uh, this alternate track who knows it might work exactly. that would... you know what Steve I think it's to- tokamak I believe tokamak okay. Tokamak. Yeah. Um, you, you know, you, you fund this alternate track, and um, you know, I would love for him to uh, to have been right because it's a cheaper it's a cheaper route. They're much smaller reactors, and uh, you could you could have more of them, and, uh, and it, it would it would be it would be great if it worked. And so, I was, and I think you're absolutely right. This is not something that the private sector is going to pursue. It's something it's, that it's uh, hard to it's hard for a. a a private sector investor to put up, say, a half, a half a billion dollars, um, a roll of the dice, on something that might not work, or that even if it does, you really can't model the return on your investment. I mean, yeah. if it works, and it works like Bussard thought, you say, okay, the, ha- the half billion gets us a working prototype, and it proves the technology. Well, now what do we have to spend to build the first commercial reactor? I don't know. It would be worth it, but I don't know what that number is. And that that kind of modeling... Um, is really hard to do, and it discourages. Well, I mean, basically, it would discourage anybody. Buffett's not going to do it. Bill Gates isn't going to do it. Google didn't do it. They saw the freaking talk, and they didn't do it, yep. even though they put a laugh track on the talk. Well, okay, they actually, about the laugh they track. They added a laugh track like that wasn't the people in the talk laughing. <laughs> I think it, I, he, he actually. You said he was dry, but I have to disagree. I think that it, it, he actually uh, he said a couple of funny things that during his talk, and I think there were there were actual that was actually people laughing at the. Uh, yeah, I think those were because yeah. yeah, they're I, not I, used to laughing think, all that much. So I think from a, from a marketing point of view or marketing perspective, even though they were chasing the funding and they were really chasing the technology because they had the Navy funding them, um, I think that for the talk he would have been better off. Uh, getting somebody like Sala from the Indiana Jones and the uh, Ark of the Covenant movie where the guy could be dancing around going, they're digging in the wrong place. Forget about the Takamak. We don't need it. We got the electrostatic containment field. <laughs> that would have been great. But you, you, know need, you, you need to personalize it in order to get the funding. The, the dry science, coming from a dry scientist, it's like, yeah, a room full of dry scientists don't generally have the go no go decision on the funding. You end up talking to somebody who's going to write the check. You need Smile and Joe Fission. <laughs> right, and I think it's fair to say too that the Google talk was not him presenting to Google for funding. Those talks are just that's people right. talking about interesting ideas. It's that's right. That's they 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 preface the talk by I think even announcing that. And as they do with most of their Google talks, they also have that somewhat mysterious. Uh, you know, it's there's Google. Don't ask any Google classified questions, whatever those might be. 
Right. Yeah, you can ask all the fusion questions you want, but don't go asking about, you know, <laughs> the, the fact that Google has the uh, Area 51 aliens in their basement now or something like that. Well, that I, I loved it when they gave that uh, warning before Aubrey de Grey's talk. I'm thinking, what in the world? Could I... <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what kind of uh, secrets do, would Google have about life extension? But I I've come to the conclusion that, that although aliens are stupid, Steven Spielberg is not. And when he did Pinky and the Brain, that Pinky and the Brain were actually real, real, those were real characters. And that Brain really was trying to take over the world, and Brain is in a, in a basement somewhere at Google. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's my conclusion. Well, now, when I read uh, Zubrin's book, he talks about what's happening with fusion, what has happened. And uh, one of the things that caught my attention in there is how the level of funding that our government has put into fusion research has been reflective of the cost, the price of gas, the, the price of oil. And when the price of oil goes way up, we spend more money on fusion. When it goes down, we stop spending money on fusion, uh, which has been one problem towards having kind of a consistent uh, progress towards towards getting anywhere with it. Yep. And the other one was, I guess, that the European consortium and, and, and the U.S. consortium are all working on the same model. They're all working on the, the Tokamak model rather than, uh, I think what Zubrin suggests is, uh, Stephen, along the lines of what you were saying, is that we should have different groups trying different things, and there should be a competitive environment. Currently, there's not a competitive environment. I mean, you know, wh whether, whether something along the lines of, a, of an X prize would work, I don't know. It would have to be a huge prize, and I'm not sure who would fund it. But, um, but, but right now, there's not even anyone working against anyone else. Everyone is sort of theoretically working cooperatively, but taking this very long, very slow sort of... Um, Approach towards uh, towards making anything happen, and and it seems to uh, it, you know it, it seems to be this open-ended thing where we were 30 years away from fusion 50 years ago, and we're 30 years away from it today. <laughs> yeah, and right. and uh, the the Broussard method could be a shortcut, and instead of spending you know billions of dollars pursuing one path that may or may not you know it, it could be in 30 years we're still 30 years away, you know. Um, or, or we could spend a, a much smaller amount of money and find out if uh, if this path has any credence to it at all, and we could know within five years. You know. Well, the so, thing that was uh, the thing that was sort of the most engaging and frustrating in the Boussard talk um, for me was that he he outlines in a broad sort of description, and then you can go and find other sources that you can find a little bit more detail about what he's talking about, including the paper he published in September of '06. Um, whereas they they pitched the Navy on continuing their funding. Each prototype that they pitched, they were relatively close, both in uh, schedule that they thought it would take to get the thing to the next stage and size and complexity of the project. They were off a little bit here and there, but they were basically in the ballpark. It wasn't like they said, hey, the thing's going to have to be six meters big, and it turned out to have to be 600 meters. It was like they said six, it was 5.8. They said it would take six months. It took seven months. They said it, you know, it, they were all very close, and it was very incremental progress, uh, working in very complicated areas. Now, I'm always suspicious when, when that kind of research says, yeah, the physics, the science is done. Now it's just the engineering. It's like, yeah, and then the engineers get in there and go, what? <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. Um, so I was a little suspicious about that part of his talk, but the fact that he would even make the claim. Um, and that he had this track record of basically making his milestones, and now he's like, look, we can have a working uh, proof of concept with 200 million bucks and two years. Um, that was that 
that to me was like, well, how come nobody's taking that seriously? Now, I say that. Maybe people are taking it seriously. And, of course, Zubrin might suggest that people and others in that way of thinking would suggest that there are people with a vested interest in not seeing that come to fruition just yet. Um, and so they're not that interested in funding it or advancing it. Well, you know, who knows? It might become a classified project before it's over. And maybe there's, uh, maybe you know, uh, maybe there'll well, be it advances was. before. Up until, uh, up until the Navy pulled his funding, yeah. it was totally classified, which is why he hadn't published anything until September of '06, when he said, i gotta, I got to publish this. i got to tell the world. Yeah, after his funding well, was withdrawn. Is, is there also a possible association with Bussard just that he's known primarily for very long-term, very far-thinking? I mean, brilliant guy. But but what I knew him, uh, the association I had in my mind with Bussard was the Bussard Ramjet, the, yep. this notion of using um, uh, these big scoops on starships to, to suck out space matter and, and, and blast it into a fusion uh, rocket propulsion system that then sends you at uh, something close to the speed of light. So, I mean, that is a very far future kind of technology scenario, and it's a brilliant idea, but when you associate someone with that kind of idea, when you hear him talking about something more near term, maybe it doesn't have the same kind of credibility it would have if he had, you know, earned his chops doing something more near term. I guess is the, is the thing. Do, do, do you think maybe he just kind of suffered from from the association of being kind of I'm not going to say kooky, but but just kind of out there a little bit. Well, he he definitely I think suffered in the sense that reputation wise that uh, early on the his his uh, propulsion theories. He really wanted to go to Mars, and he was in a a minority in that regard. In even in his own community, there weren't that many people that excited to go to Mars. He was very excited about the possibility of going to Mars. Now, whether or not later in his career he still harbored that, hey, I'm going to figure out fusion because my God, we could put this on a spaceship, and we could be in Mars in a week. Um, I, I don't know, and frankly, that'd be the kind of thing where, in discussion with the Navy, I could see where it'd be like, "Oh, yeah, okay, don't talk about that so much. <laughs> Let's just focus on the fact that we need to move an area." And you could do an aircraft carrier. carrier too, by the way. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah he's, he's been submarine for 15 years, <laughs> or, or a Mars mission, but let's talk about the submarine. Well, he, he I, has... I think as a, as a government-funded entity and as sort of a double super-secret working in his own space, uh, in more or less in private until the end, um, I think he suffered in that regard because it didn't force upon him the discipline to, and I jokingly say, hey, you've got to come up with Smiling Joe Fusion. You need the talking animal that that can make your idea something people can relate to. Well, he never really had to do that. He, he could make the audacious claim that he was going to develop a fusion reactor and, you know, I can do it on a small budget and make the next milestone, and he got that funded. And when that funding got, got zeroed, when that went away, um, and now he had to come out to the world, he didn't come out to the world with a nice polished VC speech. I mean, those guys at Eastor with their ultra-capacitor, I'm highly confident when they pitched Kleiner, Kleiner Perkins and the other VC community, their pitch was polished, and it looked like what the VC community and the investment community wanted to see. You could model a return on investment. You could talk about what the heck you were going to do and make it plausible. He, he, he lacked that discipline because he never had to develop it. And I think that, that hurt the company, I think. Um, and it hurt the ability to fund that kind of idea because, you know, let's face it, you're trying to fund a $200 million idea that gives you fusion, fusion energy. Well, yeah, the, the, the payback is huge, but it's such a big upfront hurdle. Who, who can really do it? Who can look past 
um, you know, whatever eccentricities might exist in the guy's personality. Uh, and I'm not saying it's it's that small. I'm saying it's. It, I don't mean to trivialize the the fact that he couldn't pitch to the private investment community. DARPA or CERN, they're like the only two that could have done it. Yeah. Well, and, you know, footnote on CERN. I'm hoping that that as that thing comes online this year, um, that we start seeing data about not only the design of the thing and how the first um, the first accelerations are run. We're going to get better data on what's going on with their magnetics and their elect- electrostatic confinement. Um, and the two there, maybe there's some synergy there, although the logical extension for CERN would be to go to the European consortiums that's working on a giant Pakamok. Yeah. Mm. Well, I, I, uh... All of which proves that aliens, in fact, are stupid. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful way to tie it all together. Thank you, Michael. That's great. I'm sorry, Stephen. You were going to say. Something. Well, I was just going to say that you know I, th- I think that we need to pursue both, and at the same time, I think we need to be building fission reactors in this country. Um, uh, we, we, you know, I think we, we, we and, and and develop batteries for cars. You know that. So the, let me, and I pose this not just to be the uh, devil's advocate. I'm. I have no uh, overt uh, uh, opposition to. Uh, nuclear reaction as a source of energy. Um, I'm not even sure we could do it. Yes, I know we have the technology because I'm sure it's in a book, and I'm sure it's in a book that Google has scanned and is in their double super secret vault. But uh, do we have the 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 human infrastructure? Do we have the nuclear engineers walking around on college campuses or in labs somewhere who could gin that kind of thing up? Well, I, let me bring I it back. The reactor came online 30 years ago. Well, I, yes, yes, we do. Provided that we have somebody like you know, uh, you were mentioning earlier, a presidential candidate who made it a priority. You know, I, uh, if you had a president that said that we're going to do this and uh, here's the money, we could import the brain power if we didn't if we don't have it in, in, in this country. So, I think it's a, it's a good point. We were building the infrastructure to support that uh, the, the human infrastructure uh, intellectually. Uh, 25, uh, 30 years ago, maybe even 15, 20 years ago, and and that has fallen off considerably since then. But there are people who uh, who have those skills, who have that education, and who could be brought up to speed. I don't think that that would be an insurmountable hurdle to uh, to ramping up towards that, especially since ramping up is going to take a while. And you could definitely get kids who are in school now uh, geared in that direction if if you were to uh, if you were to make it a priority now. But but, but let's just say bottom line on. Uh, Bottom line on fusion is, um, in your view, we're going to need a either one of two things: either a, a government program along the lines of an Apollo project, or um, an out of the blue uh, Nairobian hooker type uh, scenario to, uh, to, to get us there. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, uh, and I should. I, and I, I would discount the it, second. I would say it's you know, 99% got to be the first. One percent could be the second. Okay, and just just to clarify, since you didn't, the Nairobian hooker was actually referenced to a woman uh, in Kenya who is um, <laughs> HIV immune, apparently, and she's uh, actually her her uh, immune system is now a, a source of hope that there might be a, a cure, uh, prevention for HIV, and even a cure for for HIV. So, um, and and she just sort of appeared out of the blue. This uh, you know the, the, this person who seems to be completely immune to HIV. So it's it, it's kind of that outlier unexpected development uh, that that no one was looking for that might actually solve the problem. And you're yeah. saying we don't want to count on that. So therefore, Black and Decker tries to make a uh, a garbage disposal that turns out to be a really good fusion. 
the point is <laughs> oh, that, yeah, but that coincidentally, that, it gives us cold fusion. Or <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> the, the advances and the technology sometimes happen in unexpected ways. But if you're going to do anything intentional, I mean, if you bank on the the, the outlier saving the day and making it work, then you never would do anything intentional. And while I'm a Cubs fan, and I've seen them not do anything intentional towards, you know, making their way to a championship, I say, you know, you're going to do something intentional, you've got to take the other approach, and you've got to say, look, we're going to pursue fusion, we're going to pursue uh, fissile nuclear energy, which we already know how to do to some degree. Um, we've got to pursue solar, we've got to pursue cellulosic ethanol. We've got to do it all, because energy and, and the way we put it to work in the economy um, we did an oil and, base, oil and gas, coal-based economy, and it's given us such energy density that you can't just walk away from that. We have to, we have to go down that path now. The, the, the disruption and the pain of making the adjustment to, you know, back to medieval energy consumption just isn't gonna, doesn't, doesn't cut it for me. It makes no sense. I need to jump in, Michael, because we need to move on to our, our next segment. And uh, I guess, uh, guys, I need to ask, uh, are we going 90 minutes tonight? Um, yeah, because uh, we definitely need to if we're going to uh, hit the other two segments. I actually can't go 90 minutes. Let's push it uh, to uh, an hour and 15 minutes, 75 minutes, if that works for both of you guys. All right. And we'll uh, foreshorten the other two segments if, if that works. Okay. I want to hear some amazing science facts. Let's move on. Well, I'm sorry I don't have any because what I have are... Astounding Science Facts. It's either astounding, not amazing. Okay. <laughs> hey, whatever floats your boat. <laughs> That's a fine distinction we're making here. Okay, I, I hope I hope everyone appreciates that that first thing was like electricity. Okay, and then the announcer comes on and says astounding science facts, and then we have like whale song. Okay, it's pretty cool. So maybe it's more powerful if you don't explain it. I don't know, but uh, I just. I thought that was pretty darn effective. Okay, so let, let me just talk about some astounding science facts. And before we jump into this, I want to say, Stephen, this is our uh, uh, kind of the alternative to Tales of the Paranormal because everything we're going to talk about on astounding science facts is within the realm of actual science instead of having to step beyond into the world of strange, odd coincidences with uh, between myself and the planet Mars and that sort of thing. So uh, I'm going to step through these very briefly because I want to leave plenty of time for fun tech, because I know you've got some, some, some fun stuff you want to get into on these. And in fact, I can refer listeners who are interested in finding out more about these astounding science facts to the Speculist, because all of these have appeared in uh, blog posts that are currently running on the Speculist. And the first of my astounding science facts is listed in a blog post titled The Blue-Eyed Variation. And, and that fact is that all blue-eyed people on Earth can be traced back to one ancestor who lived near the Black Sea, they're telling us. So somewhere central, well, I guess more like Eastern, Eastern Europe there, about 10,000 years ago. And so this was a mutation that uh, showed up, and one individual is, in fact, the ancestor of everyone on Earth who has blue eyes. Now, I don't know what, what the demographics on the call are here, guys. You guys are, Stephen, eye color? Uh, Greenish. Green. Greenish, okay. Michael, what do you got? Yeah, I'm gonna go with greenish. That's interesting. We're all three green eyed on the on the call because you don't typically hear that one. And one of my uh learning points uh in, in reading about this is that um 
green eyes are not, as I would have thought, a variation on the blue eye color. Green eyes are actually a variation on brown. And so even before this first blue-eyed person showed up, there were people with green eyes on the planet. And, and you could have anywhere from, uh, anywhere from a, a, a fairly hazelish, you know, all the way to kind of a clear, a clear green, all the way to brown so black that it's, that it's black. And that is all the original standard human variation in eye color. And then, boom, 10,000 years ago, one person shows up with, with this gene, and everyone on Earth with blue eyes is now descended from that person. Plus, as I point out in the blog post, a lot of people on Earth who don't have blue eyes are also descended from that person because blue eyes are, of course, a recessive gene. And so like the mitochondrial Eve, who lived quite a bit earlier than that, she lived 140,000 years ago, and she is, in fact, uh, the mother of, not mother, but ultimately the ancestor of every human being alive on Earth because we all share the same mitochondria. There's no variation on that anywhere in the species. This guy who lived 10,000 years ago could actually be uh, the ancestor of a very large segment of the human population. And in fact, it's likely that he now has, or she, now has many more descendants who have brown eyes than blue eyes simply because blue eyes are recessive. However, that's astounding science fact number one. All blue-eyed people descended from the same person. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. I thought that was pretty amazing. And, in fact, do you, either of you guys have anyone that you're descended from who has blue eyes? I don't think so. I think uh, in my family we've all had green or brown eyes. Yeah. Okay, you still can't rule this guy out as an ancestor. How about no. you, Michael? I, uh, I, I don't believe I can think of a single ancestor or a uh, family relative even with blue eyes. Okay, because one of the things I pointed out in the blog post is that all my siblings have blue eyes, so I'm really the outlier with the green eyes, but I always thought I just had a variation on the blue. turns out, no, I'm like the brown-eyed kid in the family. Um, <laughs> but the fact that my parents have blue eyes means that I'm descended from this guy, even though I don't have blue eyes. So I was, you know, I was trying to get you guys into the same family with me, but uh, you, <laughs> you go back far enough. We're, we're cousins somehow, Phil, I'm sure. <laughs> to be related, so <laughs> yeah. that's fine. However, we do all trace back to the mitochondrial Eve. Okay, moving quickly on, uh, astounding science fact number two, let's talk about the strange galaxy. We've, we've identified a galaxy. It's NGC 4622, um, and its spiral arms are wrapped in opposing directions. Okay, so you've got a galaxy with, uh, with a couple of spiral arms going one way and a couple of spiral arms actually going the other way. And this is perhaps the first of its kind ever to be identified. And I write about this, uh, actually quote about this, at length on the site. I don't want to spend too much time on this except to talk a little bit about, uh, does anyone have any thoughts as to how something like that could come to be? Well, have... if, it's, if it's aliens, they're not stupid. But since we know they are, it's not aliens. I have to, uh, I have to say, it's got to be galactic. Michael, I want to say I really appreciate you staying on the theme tonight. <laughs> yeah, no <laughs> doubt. Galactic collision is the only thing that makes sense to me because if if it's going to be spinning, you know, a, a galaxy seems to me could only spin one direction. So I mean, if, in order for it to look like it's actually spinning two directions, you got to it's got to be two two galaxies that met up, and it'd be that'd be a rough galaxy to if you're an intelligence living in that galaxy, you got to be. Uh, you know, kind of worried about where the, you know, are we going to be going against the flow for the next few years? Uh, I mean, you know, I, I, I would think yeah. there would be a lot of collisions in a galaxy like that. 
and, and in fact, you both nailed the possibilities that I that I talk about in the blog. The, um, the the most likely case is that two galaxies collided here, and that um, they they were not spinning the same way. They hit each other, and one has absorbed the other, and now you've got an inner galaxy spinning one way, and the outer edge of it um, rotating rotating the other way. And yes, it would have been absolutely cataclysmic for both galaxies, actually, for that yep. to have occurred. So this is uh, when you look at this galaxy, you're seeing a galaxy where perhaps the the most the worst cataclysm that can happen on the galactic level has in fact occurred uh, yeah. to this galaxy um however my theory my 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 other alternative theory is that what we're seeing there is the work of non-stupid aliens and these are not the ones who visit the earth these are uh, these are other aliens and in fact what we see here is the largest possible scale engineering going on and somehow <laughs> the uh, opposing rotation is generating some energy or it's solving some other problem that they have and that this could be our first real good solid evidence of intelligent life out in the universe pretty cool pretty cool I'd, yeah i'd like to know what uh, you know what what how that would work you know i mean theoretically yeah, well, yeah i think where my where my theory falls down is i can't really name any benefit that you <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay okay For, for making that happen, but it's a happier story if they did it on purpose than the two galaxies collided, and uh, so I'm sticking with that for a while. Okay, okay. I'll go with that. Astounding fact number three: we've got a new species of mammal, and I've got a picture of him up on the up on the blog, and uh, a little critter too. If you think that's cute, um, well, he's so uh, ugly. He's just cute. You narrow your taste some. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, uh, so ugly. He's cute. Okay, I'll buy that. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's cute until you get about I don't know a third of the way into that snoot and then it's just like what the heck is going on with this animal? This uh, <laughs> technical name is the rhino. Uh, let, let me get this right, Rhinochosion uzungwensis. Okay, but it's actually a giant elephant shrew, or the uh, native name for this in Tanzania where it was found is the sengi. And how big this is little, the thing? About the size of a house cat. Wow. So. For yeah, for for a shrew, it would be enormous. Actually, these were misidentified. Uh, the smaller variations on this mammal were misidentified when they were first I'd, first discovered uh, quite some years ago um, as shrews because they sort the, the people who first found them thought they kind of looked like shrews. Um, I, I I argue that they don't really look like much of anything alive on the planet. But I guess if you want to say they look like anything, they sort of look like shrews. Anyway, about the size of a house cat, but they got this schnoz coming out the front that is kind of heading in an aardvark direction. And and then they've got kind of a mousy little head and kind of a rat-like body, but very strange little chicken feet. And just just a very interesting uh, little animal here. Um, found in the... Uh, Udzungwa Mountains in Tanzania, which it turns out is this very rich area for biodiversity that uh, a number of new species have been discovered there over the past few years. And uh, let me just tell you what they found. They found the Udzungwa, Udzungwa, let me get that right, Udzungwa partridge, the Phillips Congo, Congo shrew. So it's a heavily shrew-favoring uh, kind of an environment and a new genus of monkey which they call the Kampinji. So this is an area that uh, we hope to see more uh, interesting wildlife discoveries in in the near future, but uh, I, I would direct everyone to the website to see this interesting new mammal that's been discovered. I think it's, it's really cool because, I mean, we're finding new insects all the time, you know, small things. 
but to find a new mammal is is uh is remarkable that even at this late date that there's still things out there that we have not seen before that are fairly large size a house cat you know that's cool. exactly that's not small it's like the pig they found uh in southeast asia a few years ago that thing was like it's i call it a pig it's not a pig it's it was a new species but it's uh it's pig sized i mean it's like you know a fully grown adults like 200 pounds i was like how how did you not see that thing wandering around the village yeah how, how could something like that be missed it's re- it's really amazing and it and only goes to say that we probably have uh more of these kinds of discoveries to make b- before we're through because really, it would have been pretty cool if they had discovered this and it had just been a fossil. If they'd said, "Hey, look at this interesting animal that lived a hundred thousand years ago or a million years ago," but no, to, to actually find a living population of something that we had never seen before and didn't know was there is—it's just really exciting. It's—it's. Uh, it's, I met a somebody who once introduced himself to me as a cryptozoologist, which. You know, somebody says something to you, it's like the person you talk to who casually throws out that they were abducted by aliens. <laughs> well, cryptozoologists, they study Bigfoot, right? I mean, isn't that... That's right. Lock, lock Bigfoot, Chupacabra, Bigfoot. you know, they're yep. they're out there looking for the the thing, and they find this, and they go, well, yeah, okay, see, this proves the point. We don't know all the mammals that are out there. I'm like, yeah, it proves But you know what? what? A, a, a true cryptozoologist is completely unimpressed by something like this. Really? Yeah. Well, I'm just gonna. I, 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 I'm talking about things I have no idea about. But I'm just thinking. <laughs> you know, I, I'm just thinking. You know, they're they're more interested in the mermaid and the Loch Ness monster and Bigfoot. They, you know, you find a real animal that is brand new. That's just biology. You know. <laughs> well, but, but I think I think Michael's it proves point their point. That, that it proves their point that yeah. something can exist for a long time. It can have been there, and there's been no evidence for it. And then suddenly, we we know it exists. I mean, so this, this little chupacabra could shrew, be the same as the, uh, the, the the giant elephant shrew is 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 what a that's right. But this this little elephant shrew wasn't trying to hide from us. Chupacabra and Bigfoot are trying to hide from us, so that's why we haven't found them. Okay, that, that's what they're they were not stupid. Talking. Aliens are stupid. They're not. The the, <laughs> the classic <laughs> example that they give is the gorilla, which was believed to be a myth. And uh, then suddenly they proved it existed, right? So the the mountain gorilla in Africa was believed uh, in the middle part of the 19th century to be kind of a Bigfoot type phenomenon. So, wow. however, unlike Bigfoot, we really have pictures and scientists who have found and examined the uh, giant elephant shrew. So I'm going to give it uh, at least one point over Bigfoot at this stage, but, you know, stay tuned for late-breaking bulletins, because we might be talking about Bigfoot in the next edition of... Oh, man. <laughs> Astounding Science Facts. <laughs> I thought we were going to get the sound deal. Hey, we want the electricity. We need the whale. Astounding Science Facts. That is pretty cool, Phil. I like that. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, we're moving up. We're moving up on our intros. So. Okay. Well, I don't have a I don't have a cool intro for uh, uh, for Fun Tech, but we, maybe we'll get one soon. But the Fun Tech I want to talk about is the Jetpacks. Um, we now have a third company that's pursuing Jetpack technology, and you know, what little kid doesn't want to have like a Jetpack to fly back and forth from the house to school and everything? But um, the new the, kid. I think uh, Michael and I would both be signed up for one immediately, right? Just, uh, well, the, this I'd have to see it demoed, but yeah, I'd, I'd be in line. Yeah, uh, the, this Thunder Pack is what they're calling this new one. Uh, 
uh, gets 75 seconds of flight, which basically doubles the their competition. And um, anyway, they uh, they're actually wanting you know they, they might actually sell these things to actual customers now. I mean, uh, 30 years of jetpacks, pretty much all it's amounted to is uh, a few a few demonstrations at you know the Super Bowl and stuff like that. You know, you don't have actual people do, uh, using these things. And, the, and it really comes down to this. If you're into personal flight, this is probably not the way to go about it. There's, there's no, I mean, it's, it's just brute force putting you in, in, into the sky. There's nothing else keeping you aloft besides, you know, a rocket. And, What's your uh, top speed or max altitude? Well, uh, the, you know, there, you know it, it depends entirely on how, how high you can get and then get back down. Right, I'm just saying, 75 seconds. seconds. Of, uh, they're saying about, of, that's a lot of go juice. They're, they're saying two thirds of a mile, uh, uh, you know, across the ground is about as much as you can cover uh, in the in the flight time. But I, I got to tell you, um, you know, if you're into personal flight and you you want to pull something out of the trunk of your car, strap it to your back, and fly, <laughs> this is not the thing. Um, it's just not, it's not the way to go. You need uh, you need to go with uh, powered paragliders. And I actually have tried this. Um, um, it was, I, I got a ride in a powered paraglider. Now, this is not the one you strap to your back. There, there's, there's the kind that you strap to your back, and you're standing there, and you walk, and then you take off, and uh, you fly. I, I got to fly and you know, ride along in one that's like a tricycle type, okay? And the funny story about it was I, I walk up there, and he said, yeah, you want to ride? Yeah, sure, I'll take a ride. And uh, we get in there, we strap in, and we go down the runway, and he's, you know, he's pouring on the power. And we're coming off the ground, but the trees are getting pretty close. And he yells back to me. This is We were riding tandem. You know? He says, how much do you weigh? <laughs> I mean, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking to myself, you ask me now? Um, yeah. What 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 can we do about this at this point? Bro? Yeah, it's kind of late in the game. But what, what two, steps can we take? Yeah, the, I, I yell back two forty, and he does a mental calculation and goes, "Oh man, we're twenty pounds overweight," you know. And he's got it, you know. He's got it, you know, uh, you know, punched as hard as he can have it. And these trees are getting closer and closer, and he starts, you know, this is this is something you never want to hear your pilot say. Okay, he's saying, "Come on, baby, come on, baby." <laughs> We miss those trees by ten feet, man, and <laughs> nine nine feet more than you had to. I yeah, that's right. But I tell you, if you clarify one thing, I need to clarify one thing. And okay. this is the technology you're telling us is the one we do want. Is that you right? want to do this instead of uh, jetpacks? Because I'm going to tell you, as, as scary as that was, I'm convinced that this is. For, you know, put it this way: if you lose an engine with a, a jetpack, you're screwed. If you lose right. an engine with a powered paraglider, you're coming down. You're still in a parachute. You're, you're in a parachute. The parachute's already open. You're you're just out of the trees. Yeah, and so you got you got a you got a fighting chance with that, and uh, uh, and it's a whole lot of fun. And uh, five gallons of gas, which is the max that you can have, uh, will take you a long way, and you can stay aloft for a long time. Um, with a powered now, a power paraglider is the same. Paraglider. That's the same as an ultralight. Is that right? Well, it is a it is a species of ultralight. You know, some ultralights are you know are more like hang gliders with 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 engines on the back of them. A powered paraglider, you're actually under. You know, you start off on the ground. You got the parachute behind you. You turn on your engine. It inflates the the uh, the parafoil behind you. Okay, 
and uh, then it, it goes up, and, it, and as, as, as soon as the, the parachute is aloft, you start stepping forward or rolling forward, and uh, you take off. And the cool thing, I mean, it, it's a real, real easy thing. Any, any person can fly one of these things. It's, so, it's the easiest uh, type of flight you can, you can possibly have. You add power to go up, you take power away to go down, and then you steer right and left. That's, that's the extent of it. And uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. And uh, if, if you're interested in personal flight, go with that. Don't go. And, and you can do it for about $5,000. Um, the, uh, the, these jet packs, How much will the jetpack set you back? And they're talking uh, in the neighborhood of $150,000. And, uh, and, 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 and almost a, a flight. Uh, you know, and, and depending on how many times you actually risk your life, uh, almost certain <laughs> death inside of the first year. You know, so, uh, well, yeah. now, just as a thought, since you're, since you're selling out 150000 how much extra would it be just to throw a parachute on the top of the jet pack, really? I mean, you know, since you've got a pack on your back anyway, wouldn't that be a logical uh, thing to add to the whole jet pack package? So just in case you do go past your fuel or something conks out, you've got that same backup that you, you would Well, have. the problem with it is that I think that almost all, almost all of your, um, your jet packing around is going to be within 100 feet of the ground. Which is too you don't you don't have enough time oh, to you get the parachute up. <laughs> you're, 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 you know you, you, your engine goes out and you got about two seconds until you smack into the earth. So, um, you know, I, I, what about no. like springs on your feet, like great big springs? Phil, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to tell you, man, if you want to try it, uh, that's that's great. But uh, uh, you know, I, I, no, no, you've got children, you don't try it. Don't try. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> anyway. Okay, so fun, fun tech, uh, our, our fun tech uh, recommendation is uh, shy away from the jetpacks for now, and we'll we'll lean towards uh, powered paragliding at this point. And uh, for personal flight, technological yes. That is absolutely right. And the other cool thing uh, we got uh, fun tech number two is the Danger Will Robinson robot and. Uh, you guys know what I'm talking about the uh, the the uh, robot, robot from Lost space. in Space, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. And and you know the incredible voice that that these uh, these robots had. That does not compute. <laughs> yeah, oh, there he is. Yeah. yeah, that does not compute. Danger will. That's kind of like Tales of the Paranormal, actually, kind of similar. Yeah. Well, this uh, they uh, there's this company that uh, is licensed to make full size replicas of these things. And you know, got the voice. They move around. They do. They're really cool. And I, I thought it was interesting. They're not replicas of the one uh, of the prop that was used in the show. What they're trying to build is the character. Now, how would you guess that would be different? That's really interesting. Well, um, uh, we're building the character. We're not building the prop that was used on the show. How would that be? Okay, so, so you make it out of plastic rather than wood, for one thing, right? It was probably head parts made out of wood or something like that. Is that, is, is that well, one of the differences? They're, they're saying, okay, things that, you know, we, 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 got, we had access. When we built this thing, we had access to the props or what's left of the props. They're probably broken and busted. But they went into the workshop. They saw what they had used back in the show, and they, they used that as the starting point for what they were doing but things that they left out like buckles for a person to get in the robot 
Yeah, we're not doing that. Well, you know, we're we're making the robot. We're not making a oh, suit we're not for somebody it a to get costume it. that somebody can put on. Right, it's actually a robot. Okay, I see. Yeah, so I mean, these are things that they never showed on the show, and then and because you know we're on the show, they're trying to build and make a character too, but we're not making the prop. We're going to make the actual robot. So you know, gone are the buckles for getting in the thing. Gone are you know these various other accommodations for the human that's in it, and uh, and instead we're going to make it as much like the robot as you imagined it to be as a child or when you saw the program. So Now, I, I've seen the pictures on, online, and it looks just like the robot. They've obviously made it look just like the robot from Lost in Space, and it has that voice, but can he talk? Can you have a conversation with him, or, or how does that work? Oh, no conversation. Uh, different buttons on his chest do different things. And if you plug him in, uh, you know, he might say something that's appropriate to you know, ah, you know, ah, that's that's good electricity or something. He might he he will say things that are appropriate for different functions, but no, there's not a conversation. Can you ride on him? You know what? It looks like you could. It looks like you could uh, like stand on it and let it let it. Well, ride. I mean, this this might be a rather frivolous waste of say. I'm gonna guess this thing costs somewhere between ten and twenty thousand bucks. Twenty-five. 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 So for a hundred for twenty-five for this and a hundred fifty for the jetpack for a hundred seventy-five, you could put the jetpack on the robot and robot and launch him. <laughs> well, th- you know that would be a waste of a good robot and a good jetpack because I think you yeah, but neither for one of them back. seconds, it would be a lot of fun. <laughs> that would be pretty cool. Uh, Danger, actually, Will if Robinson. You, <laughs> if, yeah, if you had both. You, you you could really just be living kind of a lost in space life there for a while because they had jetpacks on lost in space as I recall. That's right. All, all you need is that Winnebago thing they drove around in and have your house look like a flying saucer and you're 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 pretty much pretty much there. Does, do his arms work? Can he wave his arms around? Because one of the things I loved about the robot on Lost in Space is when when things were really bad. You know, he wouldn't just say "Danger, Will Robinson." He'd say "Danger, Danger," and his arms would actually start flying around. You know, it's like the robot is getting hysterical. Does <laughs> The arms, uh, the arms do move. I, I don't know if that's just posable or if they they move on their own. But you know what? I, I just don't know, and I didn't see that in the in the tech on the tech page. I didn't see. Because I want you know quite a bit wondered about that robot. Is if if he fell over on his back, is he like a turtle and is he just stuck there forever? I mean, yeah. is, is he basically like, look, as long like as I'm it. on my treads, I'm good, but get me out, get, unbalance me, and I'm toast. Yeah, I think he would be toast. This thing looks like it would be very, very heavy, and, and uh, yeah, this is this is something that you pretty much, you put in your game room, if you're a real rich guy, you put it in your game room, and uh, <laughs> and, and it's a conversation piece, um, you know. I, I think if, if I could Bill ride it, put it in his game room. I would commute riding the thing short distances. I think that would be fun. <laughs> That'd be awesome. That would be good. You, okay, so of the two, then going back, of the two, between the jetpack and the robot, you're going to recommend the robot. Is that right, right. The, the robot doesn't hurt anybody. So, yeah, go with go with the robot. And if, the you, robot. if you really are into, in, into pulling something out of your trunk and putting it on your back and flying, go with powered paragliding. So, Right, and, yeah. and then enjoy your robot when you get home. Okay. There you go, if you're into those kind of things. So Two robots. Even. Great. I mean, Cool gadgets. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing about more fun tech in the near future. I think that's a that's a fun feature, and uh, I think we had uh, consistent winners across the board here with our with our four features. So I think they've all passed the pilot test, and we'll probably uh, we'll hear more from the M report, and we'll definitely have more astounding science facts and more fun tech on uh, upcoming editions of the show. But uh, before we go, 
Stephen, I think uh, you've got some music for us to listen to this evening. Yes, we do. We've got uh, Mark Marshall, and uh, the song is uh, Angelina. And um, this is another example of an artist uh, doing incredible things all by himself, thanks to, you know, computer power making, uh, you know, just about anything possible in a personal studio that used to, you know, used to cost a lot of money and was not available to a person, you know, to a single musician. So an individual. So we've got a guy, and he's going to sound like a band. Oh yeah, and uh, and it's and it's a great song. It ought to be on the radio. And uh, and the song, the song again is called Angelina. And so we, yeah, we got. And, and if you're interested in hearing any of this music ever in the full stereo, you know, because the show is mono. If you want to hear the stereo version, uh, go to the show notes and click over. We'll have a link to the the stereo version of the song and uh and everything else we talk about so of course we'll have links to all this fun stuff and uh that sounds great we'll listen to angelina uh steven thank you very much enjoyed the uh fun tech this evening look forward to talking with you again michael thanks for joining the show once again it's great uh, great having you on looking forward to hearing additional m reports in the near future good night Phil. all right good night guys Oh, yeah.